Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I've been thinking a lot lately about what the hardest job in the world really is. I've seen a bunch of different occupations get this title over the years, uh, most notably probably parent, teacher, doctor, firefighter, soldier, and those all do seem very difficult. But if I were to have to pick one, I think I would likely go with Honda dealership lot attendant between the years of 2003 and 2011. Because, as near as I can tell, elements seem to be very difficult to count. Nobody from scientists to 70s funk bands to 80s cartoons seem to be able to get it right. And those are the three authorities I most look up to. If you want to see how difficult a time scientists have had trying to count elements, just look at the periodic table. If they were able to get an accurate headcount on those fuckers, that thing would look like an actual table. Instead of like a, I don't know, 8-bit drawing of a Pez dispenser that somebody knocked over. And don't even get me started on that weird little kid's table they had to tack on at the bottom. You got Europium sitting down there next to Neptunium, and you know they don't have shit to talk about. They didn't even grow up together. But the scientists get a little bit of a free pass from me because they got nearly 120 of those things that they're trying to count. Whereas the 70s funk band... They were only trying to count to four, and they still couldn't get that. They're like, oh, let's see, what do we got? We got earth, wind, fire. Yep, I think that's all of them. Water's sitting over in the corner like, uh, excuse me, guys? I mean, can't even say I'm not a funky element. Have you ever heard a Parliament song? Like, a significant portion of those are about how funky water is. Psycho Alpha Disco Beta Bio Aqua Loop anyone? Come on. I feel like by the 80s, Captain Planet was maybe trying to overcorrect for that. He's like, well, I know there's more elements than three. Gotta be at least five of them. So I'm gonna get five kids. One of them can represent each element. So he gets the kids together and he's like, all right, you're fire, you're water, you're earth, you're wind, and you're... Oh, fuck. Well, shit, um, okay, what do you want your ring to give you the power of? We used up all of the elements, unless you want to go for, like, cesium or something. So, uh, I guess pretty much everything's on the table. And the kid's like, well, uh, you know, I sure love monkeys. I mean, I'm always hanging out with this guy, and look what it says all over my Trapper Keeper. And Captain Plano looks at the Trapper Keeper and says, you heart monkeys okay so you get the power of heart and it's like no no come on i want the power of monkeys but it was too late the ring was made and that's how we missed out on having a cartoon featuring a character named multiple monkey boy it's a goddamn shame and all because elements are so difficult to count so next time you see a honda dealer that specializes 
in models from 2003 to 2011, I want you to go find the lot attendant, shake their hand, and thank them for doing the hardest job in the world. Counting elements. Now, with that out of the way, it's time for me to get on to what certainly isn't the most difficult job in the world, talking about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. And, oh boy, this is to the tune of Take Me to the Fair from Camelot. Um... You know what? I take back what I said about element counting. Uh, trying to sing like Julie Andrews when you're me is in fact the hardest job in the world. So, uh, here goes. Sir Dick Grayson. Do you recall the other night when in your dreams I garbed in white, sucked on your cheekbones all throughout the sky? Well, I'm afraid I am to blame for making you feel just the same. My new emotions have gone quite awry. And with my daddy out of my gut, I am so happy I could cry. And if I can rip my eyes from thy butt, I by right can explain the how and why. So let me tell you all of this. As a podcast recounts our ventures, so may our angst abate as Hub narrates this synopsis. Thanks, Devin. And, uh, I'm maybe gonna stop picking ones that have singing in them. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 43, May 1988. Fear Itself. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Kurt Swan, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. Teen Titan Roll Call, Nightwing, Starfire, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Jericho, Danny fucking Chase, but mostly Raven, previously in the New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly brief amount of comic book time ago, the Titans battled a religious organization known as the Church of Blood, a strangely sanguinary sect led by a surprisingly spry supposed septicentenarian, but secretly only seventh generation single centenarian asshole named Brother Blood, who had magical nonsense powers he got from an unlikely combination of wearing Jesus' prayer shawl and licking blood off of stuff. I know! Blood's second-in-command was the malevolent Machiavellian Majordomo, Mother Mayhem, who oversaw the implementation of all of the cult's evil schemes. Early on in their struggle, the Titans blew up the Church of Blood's headquarters in Zandia, the fictional Baltic, occasionally island nation populated entirely by criminals. Unbeknownst to our heroes, two of their most deadly enemies, the Brain, a disembodied evil brain with a robotic French accent who lived in a pedestal, and his partner, Monsieur Mala, a super-intelligent mutated ape with a French accent. Hooray! We're spelunking in the catacombs beneath the church and died in the explosion. Whoopsie! The Titans eventually triumphed over the Church of Blood, and Raven used her own magical nonsense powers to rob Brother Blood of his. 
Mother Mayhem, who incidentally was pregnant with Brother Blood's child, was taken into custody and handed over to the fancy pants scientists at Star Labs for study to see if they could determine whether Brother Blood's ill-defined abilities would be passed on to his offspring. Soon thereafter, Mayhem got kidnapped from Star Labs by an anonymous ungulate asshole enthusiast who went by the codename Wildebeest. This kidnapping was part of an overly complicated, ridiculous bullshit plan that didn't make any sense. The Titans managed to foil Wildebeest's scheme. Hooray! Except maybe they didn't, because possibly being foiled was part of Wildebeest's scheme, unless it wasn't. Whatever. The upside was Wildebeest escaped to pretend he had a plan another day, and the gang got Mother Mayhem back to Star Labs just in time for her to give birth to a healthy baby girl. Gadzooks! Will the Titans bear Mother Mayhem any animosity for all the murdering, brainwashing, scheming against them and trying to conquer the world she did prior to her newfound maternity? Where will Nightwing take Starfire for a weekend of hedonistic delight? And does their on-panel death in a fiery explosion mean we've seen the last of the brain and Monsieur Mala? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope. Amish country. And of course not. Is this your first comic book? Mother Mayhem is relaxing in her hospital room with her new baby. She calls in the Titans and is like, Hey, new best friends. I have a baby, so I'm a good guy now. And the best part is, since my baby's a girl, there's no way she's going to get her dad's powers and grow up evil. Neat, huh? The Titans are all, Say, that is good news, new buddy. No follow-up questions about your sudden alignment switch or the unsubstantiated assumption that Brother Blood's powers are for some reason gender-specific. Nice baby. Danny fucking Chase is like, Okay, so we're definitely in agreement that baby Jessica here isn't going to inherit her dad's abilities because abilities are for boys. But what if he has other kids who aren't girls and therefore might get powers? Beast Boy is like, Shut up, Danny Chase! You shut your stupid Oliver from the Brady Bunch mouth! Nobody wants to hear your crazy theories about a man who can have more than one child. Everyone knows that when a man has sex at a lady, he leaves his boner inside of her like a bee's stinger, and that's what grows into the baby. So how can he have another kid? What, is he supposed to just grow another boner? Read a book, Danny. Okay, technically Beast Boy doesn't say all that, he just tells Danny to shut up. Hooray! But I bet Beast Boy was thinking it, because Beast Boy is dumb, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what sex is. Anyway. Nightwing asks Mother Mayhem if she knows where Wildebeest went or what his plan was, and she's like, No, he just kept saying how clever it was, and that it wasn't even worth it for the readers, I, I mean the Titans, to try to figure out what it was, because it was never going to make any sense, you know, on account of how clever it was. Nightwing is like, Darn. Oh well, I guess it's probably best not to dwell on it. We could drive ourselves crazy trying to figure out a way that what just happened could possibly make sense. Better to just forget that the past two issues ever even happened. Good plan, Nightwing. Let's do that. On their way out of the hospital, the Titans are approached by Cyborg's girlfriend-slash-physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles. Sarah is like, Vic, can we have a serious talk about our relationship? Cyborg is like, 
Yes, but only if we can have it right now in public in front of all my friends. Damn it, cyborg. Sarah's like, okay, so a little while ago, I told you I was going to have to move to San Francisco for my job, and you threw a tantrum about it. Victor is like, I remember, and I stand by my tantrum. Sarah's like, well, I don't want to break up with you. Do you want to try having a long-distance relationship? Vic is like, can I still whine and mope about it? Sarah's like, of course you can. Now let's go to Cape Cod for the weekend. Vic reluctantly agrees that that sounds nice. Starfire is like, me and Dick are going away for the weekend too. He enjoys novelty desserts, and I enjoy taunting the puritanical with my libertine lifestyle. So we're heading down to Amish country. Danny fucking Chase mentions that he's going to visit his super spy parents in Washington, D.C. Beast Boy is going to Canada to hang out with his newly sane stepdad, the Freshmaker, and Jericho is going over to his mom's house for a couple of days, so it looks like Raven is going to have the Titan Tower to herself for a while. Dick asks the Azerathian empath if she'd like to join him and Starfire on their romantic getaway, but for some reason, she declines. Weird. The gang heads off on their various escapades. Or to their mom's house. Bye, Cyborg, Sarah, Nightwing, Starfire, Beast Boy, Jericho, and Danny fucking Chase. Once they have left, Raven is like, I love my teammates, but it's nice to be alone for a change. She heads home to her apartment. Wonder Girl is like, uh, yeah, alone, because it's not like there's another Titan. Well, guess I better go hang out with my husband Terry Long or something. Thanks a lot, guys. Meanwhile, at a fancy restaurant downtown, Jonathan Lodge and his wife Madeline are out with some friends. Jonathan just found out that he's likely to be named Ambassador to the UN, and his buddies have gathered to celebrate his good fortune. They have all raised their glasses for a toast when Jonathan starts freaking the fuck out. He sees storm clouds billowing out of his champagne glass. Dark clouds soon fill the room, but the unlucky Mr. Lodge is the only one who can see them. From her apartment across town, Raven's raven senses start tingling, and she begins getting glimpses of Lodge's horror. As the phantom weather system starts issuing thunder and lightning, the would-be diplomat's terror grows, until finally... He succumbs to a heart attack and dies. Strangely unnoticed, a lady wearing a mink stole over a green Dracula cape and a black and green bodysuit that has an arrow pointing at her crotch sneaks out of the room and congratulates herself on a job well done. Hey, it's Phobia! Phobia is a member of the Brotherhood of Evil. She has the power to make people hallucinate their greatest fear, which in past appearances has almost always been snakes. Seems like she's branching out. On her way back to her hotel room, a street vendor tries to sell Phobia a bag of chestnuts. Just for funsies, she makes him believe that a building is collapsing onto him. Guess she's not a fan of chestnuts. When she gets to her room, Phobia places a call to her teammates, The Brain and Monsieur Mala, who it turns out are inexplicably not dead after all. Hooray! As Monsieur Mala holds the receiver to the side of The Brain's jar, Phobia tells him what a good murder job she did. While chatting, the fear-mongering femme fatale glances out the window and casually uses her powers to make a racist old lady who is afraid of strangers, crowds, and being alone believe that she is surrounded by immigrants. 
The lady has a heart attack and dies. You know, I don't want to say hooray about that, but... Hooray! Back at the fancy restaurant, Raven has arrived on the scene to investigate the strange emotions she felt emanating from the eatery a few minutes ago. The avian-themed enchantress does not arrive in time to help the late Mr. Lodge, but she interviews the dinner party to try to find out what might have happened. She learns that before his death, Lodge had complained of thunder and lightning descending on him. She asks Madeline Lodge if her late husband had any fears, and the recent widow is like, No! Nothing! Well, except for the fact that he was deathly terrified of thunder and lightning, but that's probably not related to the fact that he was screaming about thunder and lightning right before he died of fright, is it? You know, Maddie, I, I think it just might be. Raven sticks around to answer some questions from the cops. She informs the city's new police captain, Mandy Wayne Herald, that she suspects the culprit is the supervillain Phobia. Good guess, Raven. Captain Harold is skeptical about the existence of the supernatural, but agrees to follow up on the tip. She gives Raven the address of her apartment and asks that the Titan call her at home if she has any new information. As she is leaving the crime scene, Raven bumps into Sarah Sims, Cyborg's kinda ex-girlfriend who it turns out he was never actually dating after all. They head to the park and grab a bite to eat from a street vendor. As she awkwardly jabs a hot dog near her mouth, Sarah tells Raven that the school for children with disabilities she works at is severely underfunded and understaffed. Victor still volunteers there, and lately Jericho has been swinging by to hit on Sarah and help teach sign language, but they could use all the help they can get. Raven eats a forkful from the oblong container of unidentifiable white food that she has purchased and tells Miss Sims that she would be happy to stop by the school from time to time and help out in any way that she can. That night, Phobia has a bad dream that she is all alone in an abandoned city. This freaks her the fuck out because apparently she suffers from autophobia, the fear of being alone. The fright-flinging felon wakes up in a cold sweat. She takes a shower to calm herself down, then looks in a mirror, yells I hate you at her reflection, and smashes the mirror with a lamp. You know, these days I generally prefer a cup of coffee and a bagel, but I can't say that's never how I felt like starting a day. Once she finishes this little morning ritual, Phobia puts on her costume, heads downtown, and walks into a fancy office building. The receptionist tries to ask if she's got an appointment, so Phobia makes her hallucinate that dogs are ripping her apart. Man, I bet that lady never has to wait for a table. Once she gets inside the boardroom, Phobia strolls up to one of the businessmen, who is apparently next in line for Jonathan Lodge's ambassadorship, and triggers his claustrophobia by creating an illusion that the terrified tycoon is trapped in a maze and that the walls are closing in on him. The other businessmen stand around uncomfortably, afraid to intervene, as the panic-stricken plutocrat clutches at his chest before dying of a heart attack. Bummer. As Phobia has been carrying out this ghoulish mission, Raven has been hanging out in that weirdo stalagmite dimension where she used to go all the time and yell about her emotions. Apparently while she's in there, she can sense everyone in the world who is having a big feeling. The dying businessman's terror certainly counts as a feeling, so Raven teleports herself to his office and confronts Phobia. Raven is like, Hey, Phobia, please stop using your powers to murder people. Phobia is like, No, I'd rather not. Let's have a feelings fight instead. 
I'll go first. Let's start with, oh, I don't know, fear. Instantly, Raven sees an image of her extra-dimensional demonic bad dad standing in front of her. He's like, Thought you could let trigons be bygones, did you, daughter? Well, think again. I'm going to evil you up something fierce and make you murder your friends or something. Raven is like, Nope, nope, nope. Don't like this. She squints her face up real hard and concentrates as hard as she can. After a few seconds, she manages to dispel Phobia's illusion. She turns to the distress-inducing do-batter and is like, My turn! Suddenly, Phobia finds herself floating alone in space. She starts freaking the fuck out. After watching her apprehension-inducing adversary convulse in terror for a little while, Raven dispels the illusion and is like, Sorry, that was mean. Phobia is like, Fuck you, bird lady! She pushes Raven down with a telekinetic blast which I guess is a thing she can do for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it's an illusion because Raven is secretly afraid of being pushed down or something? Anyway, Phobia runs back to her hotel room and calls the brain for her next assignment. The supervillainous cerebellum in his robotic French accent is like, Beep boop, I cannot give you your next target's name. Ah ha ha. But I will tell you his location, and you will know him when you see him. Ah, ah, ah. Monsieur Mala is worried that Phobia is A, too rebellious, and 2, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, but the brain brushes his primate pal's concerns aside, assuring him that Phobia will be just fine. Apparently this last assassination is the only thing standing between one of the Brotherhood's double agents and the coveted position of power within the UN. Meanwhile, Raven has a suspicion as to where her anxiety-instilling enemy will strike next. She swings by the police station and picks up some files Captain Harold has pulled at her request. Then she teleports away. Meanwhile, Phobia strides into the skyscraper where the brain indicated her next victim would be found. On her way in, she offhandedly makes a security guard hallucinate some snakes. Fair enough. Sometimes the classics are the classics for a reason. She soon reaches the office of her final target, but when she sees his face, she is shocked. The face she finds herself staring into is a very familiar one. For one thing, it looks a hell of a lot like Mr. Lodge, the guy she killed at the beginning of the issue. But that's not what freaks her out. Her final victim-to-be is... Her dad. Oh, shit. Her dad is like, Well, I figured it would come down to this sooner or later. You may as well go ahead and murder me. Phobia is like, What the fuck, Dad? You suck. I think I will go ahead and kill you. You kicked me out of the house as a teenager. Her father is like, Yeah, because you were evil. You were an evil baby, then you were an evil toddler, then you were an evil kid. By the time you were a teenager, we started to see a pattern. You always sucked and were mean, so we ditched you like the loser you are. Oh, and your mom's dead. Wow. I hope Mr. Phobia is happy with his current assortment of mugs, because I doubt he's going to be getting one that says World's Greatest Dad anytime soon. Phobia is like, seriously? What the fuck, Dad? You know what? That does it. I'm going to murder the shit out of you. Right now. Here I go. Any second now. It's almost murder o'clock. Totally gonna kill you. 
Her dad is like, fine, hope you do. Phobia is like, oh, I will. Yes, sir. Totally going to murder. Okay, fine, I can't do it. Shit. And with that, Phobia crumples to the floor in tears and is like, oh, daddy, why didn't you love me? Her dad is like, I already told you. What part of evil baby don't you understand? What's the matter? Your ears too full of evil to hear me? I mean, uh, they're there. At this point, Raven teleports in, cradles Phobia in her arms, and asks the dad, So, how'd it go? Mr. Phobia is like, Pretty much the way you said it would. Think we can fix her? Raven is like, well, she's real sad now, so that's a good sign. Hey, Phobia, do you still want to kill people? Between sobs, Phobia is like, Nah. Raven is like, Well, that's good enough for me. Phobia's dad, are you willing to take care of her and make sure she doesn't murder anyone else? Phobia's dad is like, Yeah, I guess. Raven is like, Then my job is done. Case closed! And with that, she heads back to the Titan Tower and erases Phobia's file. The end. Wait, really? Um, okay. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how's it going? Hey, it's going just fine. Glad to hear it. How are uh, things going with you? Oh, not too badly. You were able to find a way to beat the heat last weekend? Um, a little bit. I had one of those rolling portable air conditioners with the hose that goes out the window. Oh yeah, how did that work? It worked pretty good if you were pretty close to it. Hmm. I can never quite shake the impression that, like, you just sold me a shop vac, didn't you? Hmm. Yeah, this is very loud. Well... You want to talk about a comic book? I think we have to. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Let's just say that it started things off for me on the wrong foot, the absolute wrong foot, which is having a, what I think of is a private conversation in a public space. Mm. This would be the Victor and Sarah Charles conversation? Yep. Yeah, that was a thing. It was a thing in this comic, but I don't know that that's a thing in real life, is it? When, that people have? Yeah, like when somebody's like, okay, so say you and I are breaking up uh -huh. because you're going to move to, I don't know, San Francisco to pursue a fancy job. Corey, we can make our long-distance brotherhood work. And we're out with some friends, and I'm like, oh, we need to talk. You're going to be like, okay, let's do it right here and now in front of everybody. Exactly. No. Mm. It is not a thing for me, and it is definitely not a thing for you, but I think it is a thing. Because I have, unfortunately, in the course of my years in the service industry, been privy to some of those conversations. I mean, both in the form of them just kind of happening at a table for two that doesn't particularly seem to care if anyone overhears them, or in groups of people, where those do happen much like they did in this comic book. And it is kind of much like it happens in this comic book, where one of them is like, hey, can we go someplace private and talk? And the other person's like, anything you have to say to me, you can say in front of my friends. Like, I think it is often the result of a scorched earth policy towards 
this relationship. Mm. You know? Like, I don't care, burn it all fucking down. Yeah, that's fine, but it's really fucking inconsiderate of your friends. Oh, absolutely. No, it is a bad move. Boo. There were a couple of weird tones that this started off with, because you get that, but even before that, you get what was hinted at before, but is absolutely confirmed and doubled down on this issue, which is the immediate redemption through maternity of Mother Mayhem. Because now, not only is she clearly a sympathetic character, but by the start of this book, Mother Mayhem is hanging out with the Titans and everyone's all smiles. And she's like, and now we are such good friends. Thank you for helping me out, pals. She is basically beatific and is a complete good guy. And the Titans are willing to immediately forget that she murdered a lot of people. Like, a lot of people, some of whom they were pretty close with. Like, Cyborg's ex-girlfriend. Or that whole village full of lepers. And that wasn't Brother Blood. That was her. Yeah, and brainwashing Dick and Raven into, like, trying to kill Raven's mom, maybe? Yeah. That was a thing, right? Yeah, it was. And nobody gives a fuck. Water under she... the bridge. Hey, she had a baby. She's one of the good guys now. Cute baby, though. Yeah, it is a cute baby. That's not the only thing in this issue that suffers from that whiplash. Like, what? It's... You mean the case closed at the end? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, okay, cool. Let's let Raven stretch her legs a little bit and do a, a solo mission. That's awesome. But the whole phobia thing, it was such a, it's such a potentially interesting thing, I think, when you take, you know, an evil character mm -hmm. and you say, okay, so the roots of their evil stem from these childhood experiences. Right. And so what's their process of working through that and making peace with it and becoming not a evil person anymore? Mm -hmm. Hers is dad's like, you're always garbage. You always will be garbage. But. Well, wait, no, I, I can help you if you really want me to. <laughs> it is such a weird, like, I kept wondering to what extent that was like a script that Raven had given him that he was reading from, what percentage of it was true. But he does at one point say, even when you were an infant, you were cruel and evil. Yeah. That's your fucking origin right there. You have a parent telling you that. How the fuck can an infant be cruel and evil? It's like, we always knew it. And that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. He's like, we always knew it and we gave up on you and, like, you really are just a garbage person. Mm -hmm. But if you really want help, I'm willing. Yeah, because you did such a good job last time. <laughs> She's like, oh my god, really, Dad? Okay, cool. And Case closed. <laughs> exactly, yeah, Raven just, like, gets a little smile on her face. It's like, well, my work here is done. Goes back to the Titan Tower. Hits the, like, erases Phobia's file. She'll never hurt anyone again. She's killed three people in this issue alone. Ugh. Now, I'm not saying incarceration is the answer necessarily, but I think that her rehabilitation needs to be supervised by someone other than the one person who has canonically failed at it. Yeah, that's tough, but fair. Thank you. That being said, I gotta say, I liked this issue. It has a lot of problems with it, and things that don't bear up on close examination. But it was fun and it was compelling all the way through. And I'll fucking take it. Massive quibbles with a lot of it and some pretty big problems with both internal logic to the story and, I don't know, lack of consistency. But it was fun. Well, at least we know Danny Chase doesn't want to be a poop. <laughs> but he's gonna be anyway. Yeah, massive failure there, buddy. 
<laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. That was so funny to me. I don't want to be a poop. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. I don't like to get political, but. Well, I mean, yeah, it does follow the same lines as the, I'm not a racist, but. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a poop, but. Here it goes. Well, sorry, Danny Chase. That's the title of your autobiography right there. <laughs> I don't want to be a poop, but. The Danny Chase story. Pretty much. That being said, I think this is my favorite Danny Chase story that we've had since he entered the book. Because he wasn't in it. He has like two sentences and then he leaves. Yeah. Nobody tells him how wonderful he is at everything. He is reprimanded for being the poop that he is being. Which seems a little bit unfair because the way that he is being a poop in this context is by raising a legitimate concern. Mm -hmm. You know, that... Brother Blood could still potentially sire other children than little baby Jessica. But everyone also does immediately accept the idea that, well, she couldn't possibly grow up to be evil. She's a girl. Yeah, at no point do they explain where, maybe it was somehow buried in that licking blood off things issue, that it was a, uh, I don't know the word for it, but a, a trait that's only passed to males. I don't think so. I think it was just assumed. I think they're mistaking correlation with causality yeah they all seem really certain of it though i think robin is like or sorry nightwing is like well yeah that, that curse is only for the dudes so we're good mm -hmm. cute baby is it possible that that is the result of some latent uh mind washing that mother mayhem did yeah possible i mean i think that's well the two possible explanations which are probably equally likely are latent brainwashing or you know, the latent brainwashing that society does in the form of the patriarchy. Mm. So, you know, probably a combination of the two, yeah. let's say. Take your pick. Everybody's going on vacations this issue. Which vacation destination sounds the best to you? We have Cape Cod, Amish country, Canada, Washington, D.C., or Jericho's mom's house. Gosh. I think I'd take Canada. Really? Yeah. yeah. I like Cape Cod pretty good. I like Canada, too. It depends where in Canada. Canada definitely gives you more options. I mean, it, it is not as bad as the Africa is just one place problem, but uh, it is Beast Boy saying, I'm going to Canada with my stepdad. All of it? Maybe. I kind of assume somewhere, like, on the eastern side, like, they're just going north. He still wouldn't be legal drinking age there. So it's not like he's going up like our high school friends would have. Right. Man, I remember Maine sold alcohol later in the day than New Hampshire did. Mm -hmm. And when I was living in Portsmouth, it was a thing to drive over the bridge to Kittery to buy beer when you couldn't buy beer. Yeah, got an extra few hours. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't think that's they're not doing a, a beer run with his dad. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. There, there are a number of reasons to go to Canada. It's a nice place. It was recently Canada Day, actually. Mm. And so I listened to the Canada Day Up Canada Way song by Stompin' Tom Connors, and that was a nice time. Where would you um, choose? Oh, oh, I'm going to Cape Cod. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Shoe fly pie. I disagree with uh, Starfire. I think it sounds delicious. That's a sugar pie? It's a molasses, molasses pie, yeah. That was originally a, a breakfast thing. You know, like all pies really are. But specifically a breakfast thing. Yeah, I, I, just, I don't think it sounds disgusting. 
I guess maybe she's just going by the name. Does seem like an odd choice for a romantic getaway to just head down to Pennsylvania Dutch country. Gonna time it right, hit Rumspringer and party with the local kids. I mean, maybe. Like, Dick does try to invite along a third for his Amish fuckfest. <laughs> really gonna churn some butter and raise that barn. Oh, wow. I meant that literally. Okay. That's, you know, that's what uh -huh. you do in Amish country. Yep. Yeah. All make right. Make sure you put on a bonnet first, though. That's <laughs> all I got. Trim your beard. Do you try? I thought you didn't trim your beard. You shave how off the they, mustache How do they part. get them square? Well, I guess they must. They got that Dr. Zayas thing, right? Where, where it's a beard, no mustache. Yeah. Is it called an Amish beard? Maybe. I always call it a Dr. Zayas. Who's that? The guy from Planet of the Apes. He was a, an orangutan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess Abraham Lincoln had one, too, but it's an eternal debate, which is more historically significant of those two. Yeah, so, oh, okay, one, one Cape Cod, one um, somewhere in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Where, where in Canada would you go? If you could go anywhere in Canada. Uh, I've never been to Quebec. Oh. So I would go there. It's nice. I've been to Quebec. Uh, have you ever been to Nova Scotia? I would, I would want to check that out. I have not, and I would go there because we have uh, friends yeah. there. Yeah. And there's there's lobsters there, too. I wonder if it's like $30 for a lobster roll there. I heard that lobster rolls are ridiculously even more expensive than they used to be. Mm, that's what I hear, too. Last time we were back east, there was a concession cart on a mini golf course that had lobster rolls that were like, I think, $9. I ate so many of that them. That is a good deal. Yeah. We talked about the idea of Phobia's dad being maybe in on a redemption plan for Phobia. And so, like, we don't know for sure that her mom's really dead. Like, we don't know to what extent anything he said was true and to what extent he was just trying to trigger a breakdown in her so that they could rebuild her. And to give Raven the benefit of the doubt, she can sense people's emotions. So maybe she knows, maybe she fiddled with Phobia's brain a little bit like maybe she was just like hey look lady i used to have evil eyebrows too there's hope you could get better and so she sensed like a genuineness in her and was like okay that's why i'm pushing the case closed eraser criminal file button mm. there's another character that i was wondering if they were in on this too and that was the brain because i can't think of another reason other than a particularly mean prank that he would just be like, all right, I'm going to give you the address and a description of the person you're going to be assassinating. I know it's your dad, but I'm not going to tell you that. And we'll see what happens when you, uh, when you realize. Like, why wouldn't he just tell her the name if she needs to go through with it? It would seem like, okay, either she will go through with it or she won't. Steal her resolve. She's more likely to go through with it if she's prepared than if it's sprung on her. And Monsieur Mala's like, just like, no, she's already at the breaking point. She's not going to be able to do this. Either back off or demand more loyalty from her. And the brain's like, no, 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 it'll be cool. I got this. Do you think that's prank or do you think that is some like tough love? And he's like, he's in on it. And it's like, you know, I just want her to get better. Mm. I think it's a combination of bad management and trying to demand loyalty. Hmm. Okay. I don't really understand the logic there. The demand loyalty thing? Yeah. Kill your dad for me. 
why wouldn't you say that then? Instead of, go there and kill this guy, you'll know him when you see him. That's the bad management part. Oh, okay. <laughs> I saw it as like, potentially a tough love thing. Like, I wouldn't say it's the brain turning good guy, because part of this therapy program does involve the murder of two other people. But it did seem like either him being a good friend and having some tough love and, like, having her get the help that she needs, or he is just very, very incompetent and... Maybe he's just not that smart. The brain? Yeah. Oh. I mean, I would always assume he is a super genius. Mm -hmm. But how much of that is just because he's a brain without any other body parts? You see the brain, you think about, oh, well, there's a brain. Brains are where thoughts come from. So he's extra smart. Mm -hmm. He has as much a brain as everyone else. It's just everyone else has other stuff, too. Mm -hmm. It's like the same reason why it doesn't really make sense to be scared of a skeleton. Because, I mean... Everybody's got a skeleton. Most of us just have other stuff, too. Yeah, I think uh, Mr. Mala definitely... Sorry, Monsieur Mala comes off better uh, than the brain. <laughs> it is also adorable when he holds the telephone up to the brain's face. That was pretty cute. Also, the brain has some weird little eyebrow bumps that I don't think he had before, and he looks more like an adorable cartoon character than he used to. Mm -hmm. It is some interesting design work, I guess. The other question I have about Monsieur Mala and the brain, like, they first show up. My first thought is, yay, it's Monsieur Mala and the brain. I fucking love these assholes. My second thought, though, is, why aren't they dead? Oh, spaceship explosion or something? Uh, no, they were in the basement of the Church of Blood when all of the blood and lava blew up on top of them. And, like, they had their moment where they were definitely blown up. Maybe they went and they hid in that lake of blood that revives you. So, like, it did work on reviving them. The brain did let Monsieur Mala take a little dip, which he hadn't before. He was like, don't get any on you. Right. So they, they fell in there and then they eventually got better from it that way. Probably. Would have been nice to have a sentence about that or something or some acknowledgement that the last time we see them, they did die. Yeah, I had um, forgotten a little bit. Well, it seems like you and Marv Wolfman are in the same boat on that. Man, just makes it easier, I'll tell you what. I gotcha. We meet a new character in this. She is the understudy for Captain Hall, I guess, when he is recovering from being shot by World's Worst District Attorney Adrian Chase. It is Captain Marcy Harold. Mm-hmm. She seems interesting. She and the rest of her police department are suffering from a version of Dick Grayson's skepticism about the supernatural, where they are talking to Raven and basically saying, Listen here, magic bird lady who can teleport and manipulate people's feelings. You're telling me that there's a lady who can make people afraid? Okay. Yeah, yeah, there is some of that. What I did like about Captain Harold is she pretty quickly got over that skepticism or or just filed it. She's mm -hmm. like, when in Rome. Yeah, I think she used that phrase, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, eh, I guess in New York, people are super, whatever. Yeah. But the rest of her department, when Raven reports to the police precinct and tells them about this, the guy who gets in touch with Captain Harold for her is like, 
You gotta understand, this sounds berserk. And then she teleports away, and he's like, yeah, okay, good talk. It's so silly. Yeah. I noticed that she did, though, go to the police station, despite Captain Harold giving her her home address and telling her to look up her home phone number. Did you get the impression that she was being flirted with? No. Okay, I was trying to figure out another situation in which there's like, well, I'm the police captain, you're working on this case. Here's uh, here's my home phone number and where I live. Yeah. It, it seemed kind of flirty. Yeah, I could see how I might read that way. No, I was just like, new captain, trying to do a super job, mm. being fully available. Okay. I saw a couple of different ladies that I viewed as flirting with Raven in this issue. The other one being Sarah Sims. When they go to the park, and she's like, I need more people to help out in my classroom. Like, I, you know, I have flirted with this one guy for a couple of years, and he started helping out in my classroom. And then uh, Joey's helping out in my classroom, and he's hitting on me all the time. I need more help. Um, I'm just gonna rub this hot dog into the side of my face <laughs> while I talk about how nice it would be if someone else could help out in the classroom. Ugh. It is such a weird scene. It, it is akin to the way that people in this comic book seem not to know how to kiss. Maybe there is a corollary that she really does look like she is just rubbing a hot dog into the side of her face. And uh, either she is very bad at eating or that is Oh, like a sexy move. (laughs) Not an effective one. No, no. Raven, I would say, if that's the case, seems to have missed it. She was pretty focused on enjoying her giant container of ice cream. Oh, is that what that was? What did you think it was? Mayonnaise? I couldn't figure it out. I was like, maybe like it might be a baked potato from the size of the container and shape of the container she was eating out of. I was like, is that like a tub of Oleo? It's like, like one of those plastic mesh, like, french fry baskets filled with ice cream. <laughs> Maybe. We did see that the hot dog cart that Sarah Sims presumably bought her flirtation aid at sold salads. So maybe it's a salad. I can't imagine getting a salad from a hot dog cart in Central Park, but I could not figure it out. It looked like it was white mm-hmm. and amorphous in shape. I thought she was eating it with a fork, which would maybe make it less likely to be ice cream, unless that's just how they do shit in Nazareth. Or maybe she, like, brought some whitefish salad from home. Maybe that's the kind of salad they sell at the hot dog cart. Do you have so many questions? I do. You do not have answers? I still think it's ice cream. I'm going to take a look at that, because I don't see how that's ice cream. Just go on with Occam's. She, look at that. How is that ice cream? Well... You raise a good point. Maybe it's whipped cream. She's just eating a big thing of whipped cream. That isn't what the texture looks like, though. And it looks like she's eating it with a fork, but I don't know. Maybe I'm the one who doesn't know how to eat. Maybe you are supposed to rub hot dogs on your face and eat <laughs> ice cream with a fucking fork. Uh, they're both possible. I know. guess. People can do those things. Can they? Could you eat ice cream with a fork? I've done it. You have? Yeah. How? It just can't be very melty, but, like, right out of the freezer. Did you just not have a clean spoon? Might have been one of those emergency, I gotta eat it right now things. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. It's not, like, a common practice. I'm not always reaching for an ice cream fork. But any utensil in a storm? Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) 
We also see a different version of Raven's powers than I think we've seen before, that she can apparently always tell who the most emotional person in the country is. Mm, that was a weird one. And she uses it a couple of times in a couple of different ways. First, when she just senses that there's a dude who's super scared. Like, he's not particularly near her. He's not someone that she's ever met before. It was really confusing how she knew that that ambassador was being spooked real bad. And then later we see her go to her magic yelling stalagmite, and now it is a feelings version of Cerebro, I guess, where she can just sense everyone who is being emotional at the time in the universe, maybe? Worst power. Yeah, I would not care for that. But she found her guy. I mean, good for her. She may have just gone to everyone who looked like an ambassador, because we see that Phobia's dad and the ambassador who first have the heart attack look identical. Yeah, I had to flip back and double check, because I was like, wait, isn't her dad dead? Was, yeah. Wait, what's she's, going on? She's got to double murder that guy? Yeah. It was confusing, and it would also seem like the resemblance is striking enough, and it is an unusual look for a comic book, like, he is a middle-aged man with white mustache, gray sidewalls, black hair, and identical facial features. It must have been jarring for her to kill that guy the first time, and you would think she would at least be like, huh, that guy looks like my dad. Either I'm super into this, because fuck my dad, he told me I was an evil baby, <laughs> or, oh no, I have to kill this guy who looks just like my dad. Yeah, we'll never know. I guess not, because that case has been closed. Job well done, Raven. Mm-hmm. That's the noise of Hub cleaning his hands of it. Mm-hmm. We also saw a list of the phobias that Phobia exploits in this, and it was kind of a gimmick with her this time, which I don't think she's used in the past, where as she triggers somebody's fear, she'll give the, like, clinical name of that fear. Did you have a favorite from that list? I don't know that I had a favorite from the list, but I was shocked to learn that xenophobia is just the fear of people wearing either fezes or turbans. I think that's a pretty decent comic book shorthand for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Although she describes it as fear of strangers, mm -hmm. which I think is a little bit reductive. Yeah, no, that's more like street smarts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this was definitely a coded racist old lady oh yeah that she's just like hmm, fuck this racist old lady get super scared but that lady she kind of triples up on because she has like i guess three different fears she has xenophobia or you know racism mm -hmm. she also has fear of crowds demophobia and she also has autophobia fear of being alone gee pick a lane lady yeah <laughs> that's confusing she's a real multi-threat it is odd that Phobia totally recognizes autophobia and points it out, which doesn't seem to be a fear that that lady has, or at least doesn't demonstrate, even though Phobia says that she is demonstrating it, and does not recognize that that is her own fear. But I guess that's people. I guess so. Did you recognize Phobia when she didn't have her outfit on right away, when she was having no. her nightmare? No, which is strange, because that's a pretty extreme case of evil eyebrows. Yeah, it is the most... Extreme evil eyebrows we've seen, I think, in the comics, with the possible exception of when Raven got totally eviled up. She had, like, real bad evil eyebrows. It's like uh, Salvador Dali's mustache migrated. Mm-hmm. 
migrated and bifurcated. Oh, yeah, I guess it was a... I don't know if he had the little, like, line in the middle between the two pointy sides. Oh, yeah, you're right. It might just be migrated. You're right. He may not have had a connected mustache. Not to split hairs, but... Oh, God. I will put the rim shot in, but it is grudging. I think she was drawn differently in that panel. She looked so much older. Mm-hmm. Like, I had always gotten the impression that she was a fairly young woman. And I think she is supposed to be. But in that panel, and really only in that panel, she looks middle-aged. Mm-hmm. Maybe she just had a different haircut. But I think it was also her face was drawn differently. I also was worried that she wouldn't get to make somebody afraid of snakes as she has in every single one of her appearances thus far. And she really did sneak it in right under the deadline there. Mm-hmm. Like, just like the last security guard before she goes to kill her dad. She's like, oh, and uh, you're ophidiophobic. Fear of snakes. Yeah, I feel like that one's kind of a cheap shot. Like, okay, there are for sure, like, snake enthusiasts out there. Mm-hmm. But it's not super common, and I think most people kind of trend the other way. Like, I'm not going to see a snake and be like, ah, run away. But I am going to kind of be like, oh. Yeah, I, this is something to be concerned about, Yeah, certainly. Even like a garter snake, you know, I know intellectually it's pretty much harmless, but it does speak to some threat-sensing part of your brain. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like how cats get scared of cucumbers or zucchinis. Right, it's exactly like that. We're all afraid of cucumbers and zucchinis. Because if you grow them in your garden... You cannot possibly eat as many zucchinis as you... Hi, this is Editor Hub here in the future. Normally, I try to edit out as much of Finley's barks as I can, but A, he was particularly barky this session, and two, the word Corey used to try to calm him down led to a digression that I kind of enjoyed. So, here you go. What's that mean? Oh, I think it's from a, a either a movie or a cartoon with Dwayne Johnson in it. Oh, is is that the thing you do when you do your like uh, rugby kata? No, I don't know if it's that. It's like I a, thought that was part of that thing. Oh, it might be part of that thing too. That's the uh, haka. Yeah, there we go. Um, no, this is uh, his character does that to like it's like a let it go thing. It mm. might be from what's the movie with Martin Lawrence? Bad Boys. The Rock wasn't in Bad Boys. Did he? Why am I so confused? Are you confusing The Rock with Will Smith? No, I am not. <laughs> I think it's The Rock that does the Uso thing, but maybe it is Will Smith. That is Will, Will Smith. Smith. You were confusing The Rock with Will Smith. They're both pretty awesome. They also both have a pro wrestling connection. How was Will Smith connected to pro wrestling? The guy who played Uncle Phil also did the voice of Junkyard Dog in the Hulk Hogan Rock and Wrestle Connection cartoon. Well, that explains it. Well, there you go. Usa. <laughs> what were we talking about? I don't know. Snakes. Cats. Oh, yeah. Cucumbers. Right. Zucchinis. Right. So, to get back on topic, I think we're all afraid of cucumbers and zucchinis in so much as if you grow them in your garden... There reaches a time of the year in which you have 17 pounds of cucumbers or zucchini and no way to get rid of them because everyone else that you know who grows things also has 17 or 18 pounds of zucchini or cucumbers. Also, zucchini, in my humble opinion, is a very, like, it's it's limited in terms of delicious things you can make out of it. Mm-hmm. You get bread, zucchini bread. Mm-hmm. 
and you know variations thereof like you can shape it differently but a zucchini muffin is essentially zucchini bread right and parmesan yeah nothing else is really that good tough but fair so cats being afraid of zucchinis is reasonable being afraid of snakes is reasonable you're right it, it is ophidiophobia i think is a default phobia like that was the thing that pissed me off about the movie zombie land they made his personality quirk that he was afraid of clowns like no that's just people we're afraid of clowns it's not a weird thing it is totally not a weird thing i feel like it's become much more of a part of like a what's the word zeitgeist a sense of mm -hmm. was it it came out was that the one with the creepy sewer clown yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that was based on a widespread fear of clowns. Yeah. And Zombieland came out significantly after the miniseries. Mm -hmm. So, bad job, Zombieland. Yeah. We're all afraid of clowns and snakes and zucchinis. Exactly. <laughs> Try again. It <laughs> was a fun movie, though. Well, Corey, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? I think what we haven't covered will come up there. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Hmm. You want to talk about president of the drama club sure this was actually kind of difficult for me because we have two really strong entries both of whom basically explicitly state why they should be president of the drama club uh, i'm talking about raven and phobia uh, I, I would be surprised if you had a different entry than one of those two where where were you leaning on this i couldn't not give it to phobia that's fair if you stand nude in front of a mirror and smash a giant lamp into it while screaming, I hate you, you gotta win the prize. I guess that's true. She does also make a more explicit bid for the title when she is walking around wearing her weird fur feather or bubble coat. Mm -hmm. When she says, I live for emotions, raw, powerful, exposed. But Raven also does feel a lot of emotions in this, which is evidenced when she says, Emotions! I am feeling emotions! <laughs> That's like if Data suddenly could feel them. That's what he would sound like. I think he would use less ellipses. <laughs> Did that happen? That might have happened. It probably, it, well, I'm I mean, sure it, it happened a couple of times. No, he sang that weird little song in the movie about life forms. Oh, yeah. Okay, bad example. Still, I did really enjoy it. Emotions! I am feeling emotions! Maybe she was singing that, uh... Who is that? Who does that song? You Got Me Feeling Emotions? I don't know that You one. got me feeling emotions Higher than the something something do 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 That's beautiful. You got me feeling emotions You don't know that song? I might. It's not ringing like an immediate do, 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 bell. Do, do, do. You can <laughs> feel it emotion higher than the high thing. That's pretty high. Yeah, it's a good song. Mm -hmm. I mean, which you can obviously tell. I'm America's songbird. <laughs> yeah, nice work. Thank you. I also went with phobia. Yeah, specifically for the mirror scene. But it is rare, I think, that we have two such strong 
entrance into this category. So, uh, well done, Phobia. Well done. I think if it had been at all close, her eyebrow game would have put her over the top. Yeah. Let's hit this one a little earlier than we sometimes do. Battle of the Band Names! In last week's poll, I Am the Thunder again triumphed, this time over its adversary, the Little Buggers, the uh, <laughs> pop-punk band. Who do you feel like putting up against I Am the Thunder this week? I had more options than I sometimes do, but I don't know if any of them are that strong. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling? I like one of mine pretty good, but... I don't know. I Am the Thunder has been on uh, quite a tear, so... They really they are the new get the squid drunk. Yep. That's what all of the pundits are saying. Yeah. I think I'll start with my backup. Okay. Which is Laughter and Fear. Mmm. So this would be a duo. Yeah, I just realized I didn't think this part through yet. What does Laughter and Fear sound like? They probably don't sound at all like the band Fear. Oh, probably not. I mean, I have difficulty imagining laughter in the same conversation as fear. Well, I mean, Lee Ving from Fear was in the movie Clue, and that inspired a lot of laughter. No shit. Yeah, he played Mr. Body. No shit. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, he was also in the movie Dudes. I guess destroying the set on Saturday Night Live got them noticed. Yeah. Huh. No, okay, so... Laughter and Fear probably is a duo. You seen them like soul music, like a Peaches and Herb type thing? Yeah, but maybe like more acoustic. Acoustic, but with a metal edge. Oh, I don't know about metal. Acoustic soul metal. I mean, I feel like the, the fear has to, has to be at least kind of tough. Unless you're not saying that they're causing fear, they just are like a feared. It's just more so like that, that play on duality. Mm. You know, real like thinking peaches and herb songs. Okay, right. Really, really cerebral, philosophical peaches and herb. Yeah, so they pull you in with the hook. Mm. But then you leave thinking, oh man, what is it all about? Right. You go from shaking your groove thing to thinking, can I even prove the existence of my groove thing? To, I'm scared. Oh, never thought of it like that. <laughs> and then you start giggling. Yeah. Because, you know, you're high. Yeah. It's fuck. Yeah. Yeah. They probably toss out edibles. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. They could just be a, a marijuana band. Yeah. <laughs> Laughter and fear. The two things oh. that, uh, that, that that can provoke. Yeah. Fair enough. I think that's pretty good. My first choice was acrophobia, because I think that's kind of cool. And also, just for this specific battle, it does mean... Fear of thunder and lightning. Oh. Which means that maybe they would not win. But it is interesting to see them in opposition to I Am the Thunder. It's clever. Yeah. But perhaps more clever than it is, you know, good. Good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fine line. <laughs> it is. Another option I had was a Shoe Fly Pie, which I thought would probably be like an Amish funk band. <laughs> That's probably worse than the New Hampshire punk band. There's no saying that they're not also from New Hampshire. <laughs> I know it's, it's no Lancaster County, but I think there's some Amish communities there. Oh, really? I don't know. All right, so 
the Amish funk stylings of shoe fly pie. Wait, are they permitted to use wah-wah pedals and whatnot? Well, they would have like acoustic wah-wah pedals that are like yeah. hand carved. They'd whittle a wah-wah pedal for their uh, for their acoustic guitar. They called up uh, Michael Hedges and they're like, hey man, we need some funky acoustic effects. Can you help us out? I'll grab my whittling stick. That's what Michael Hedges sounds like. <laughs> Editor Hub here again. Fun fact, turns out that the Amish do not play musical instruments, except occasionally the harmonica, and even that is never in public. So that would probably hinder their ability to form a funk band. On the other hand, that is a spot-on impression of Wyndham Hill recording artist Michael Hedges. I also, this is one that I kind of liked, The Devout Cowards. Oh, shit. Oh, is that one you had? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess that's what we're going with, unless we've there's another overlap. Did you have another option? No, no, that was it. Okay, Devout Cowards it is. That does mean that Raised in Solitude is off the table, but I think that Devout Cowards is pretty good. Their tongue-in-cheek approach to things may give the self-aware braggadocio of uh, I Am The Thunder a run for its money. Yeah, I think the Devout Cowards is a solid option. What kind of music do you see them as playing? I don't know why this is, but when I heard that name first, I thought of the Dubliners. I'm not familiar with the Dubliners. Like Irish folk music. Oh, okay. Huh. Drinking song or two. But I think we're going to have to change so it So, like, up they're just, bit. like, doing, like, covers of Johnny McElduin's shit? Yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> All right. Ah, uh, gosh. I see... I don't know what I'm picturing. The Devout Cowards. I can see them being, like, a, an alt-country band. Mm-hmm. Like Uncle Tupelo type shit. What do you think's got a better uh, fighting chance against uh, the big garage rock of I Am The Thunder? Hmm. How about we split the difference and they are traditional Irish alt country? Okay. All right. So we'll put that up on the poll. Make sure to vote. Make your voice heard on this important issue. Mm-hmm. Corey, this category presents some unique problems for this issue, but every issue of a new Teen Titans comic book has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, and also an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Beast Boy, and who did you have as your Aqualad? Ugh. For my Beast Boy, I went with Vic for making us all uncomfortable and having that private conversation in a crowd. Hmm. I think that's a solid choice. The category was difficult because we get only very limited views of every non-Raven Titan in this. They really are all out of the book by the third or fourth page. Mm -hmm. That being said, I decided to go with Dick for trying to invite a third along for his Amish fuckfest. Not that that's necessarily a terrible thing if that's what everybody's into, fine. But that this is specifically a woman who has just gotten over having a huge crush on him seems like an awkward move on his part. That is a fair point. Conversely, your Aqualad was? For closing the case with such a plum, <laughs> I had to go with Raven. She was the only one who, I don't know, did you find a workaround? No, I, I went with Raven. I was tempted to nominate her for both categories, but uh, if we are giving her the benefit of the doubt and saying that through her use of 
emotion manipulation or at least sensing she could honestly tell that phobia was no longer a danger um then yeah good job i guess she initiated her patented teen titan pranked straight program mm. yet again mm -hmm. she didn't even have to dress up as anybody's dead wife in this one yeah so there's that i mean she did invoke somebody's dead mother but or she, but that was like third hand this time. So, you know, baby steps. Mm -hmm. She's improving. Yeah, go Raven. Yeah. Corey, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I went with the phones mm. in this one. I feel like by this period, 89, largely the rotary phones had been displaced in favor of push button ones. Mm -hmm. But we do see some of each. Yeah, that's true. I think more than the rotary phone for me, the timestamp that sets this in 89 is Phobia's phone, the wireless phone with the antenna mm -hmm. on it. That was like, oh, yeah, we totally had one of those. And I remember what a big deal it was to not have to worry about the phone cord because I am a pacer when I talk on the phone. Mm. And so uh, I remember that being just a, a quantum leap forward. Yeah, you felt like kind of a, I don't know, a spy or somebody important when you get to like pull out the antenna and talk on it pretty cool yeah i don't think the antenna did anything either i always got that impression like if i do or don't use the antenna it doesn't really do anything but it makes me feel cool mm -hmm. i had a couple of different timestamps. in addition to the phone we have dr sarah charles saying that by making several cross-country flights a month she will rack up a hundreds of dollar airplane bill. I felt like that sets this uh, certainly at a pre-now time. Jeez. I also noticed that the chestnut vendor that Phobia gives the heart attack to, first of all, chestnut vendors are a little bit more rare than they used to be. Also, he was selling his chestnuts for 50 cents a bag. And nowadays, if you can find a chestnut vendor on the streets of New York, you're looking at between three and five dollars a bag. Dang. So, that's some pretty serious inflation right there. I'll say. If you can find a 50 cent chestnut vendor, you, you, uh... Might want to steer clear. <laughs> I guess so. I was going to go the other way, but you get what you pay for, I guess. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Probably horse chestnuts. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound good. You know what a horse chestnut is. They're the kind we used to find on the ground. Kicking them around. Oh, you can't eat those? I don't know. Are you a horse? No. Well, then no, you can't eat them. There's your answer. <laughs> it's a weird derogatory term for those chestnuts. Yeah, these are chestnuts if you're a horse. So either they're calling horses dumb or they're only edible by horses. Mm. Not mutually exclusive. No. Zing. Mm. Take that, Mr. Ed. Eh? Uh-huh. That's another good name for a horse. Um, I don't know. Sparkles? Yeah, Sparkles is an okay name for a horse. That's not bad. Um, Gary? You can name a horse Gary. Usually they got like, like, uh, Santa's Toboggan. Oh, like race Like race horse, yeah. They have like, uh, Mr. Mm. Skiffington's Magical Remedy Number 7. Mm -hmm. That's a good name for a race horse. Yeah. That's also a fun race horse voice to do. You want to try doing a race horse man voice? Um, no. Okay. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? Gosh, 
let's just go with all of the Teen Titans fall lineup on page one. Yeah, there are a series of good looks. Specifically, I really liked Dick's sweater. Mm -hmm. Nice uh, blue and white combo. He didn't let his uh, lapels fly, which I was disappointed. But... No, he keeps his lapels tucked. I think it's because there's a different art team on this issue. Mm. But yeah, no, he's wearing a yellow button-down shirt. And then over that, he has a white sweater with Nightwing-colored blue and black stripes across the tummy. So I, I appreciate the nod to his branding. Maybe the yellow button-down is a uh, homage to his years as Robin. But uh, it's a solid sweater. It's a solid look. Yeah, pretty smooth. I also really liked Victor's sweatshirt. It is a red hooded sweatshirt with white shoulders. Mm -hmm. But then a red hood. Yeah, it looks very sporty. Mm -hmm. Starfire's getup is is pretty cool. She's got, how would you describe that? A trench coat sweater dress with a giant hood? Yeah, and it's bright purple. Mm -hmm. It is an outfit that seems familiar in a weird way, but I'm pretty sure I've never actually seen before. I think maybe there was some kind of a pop star from that era who I could see wearing that, but I don't know that I necessarily did. Or like a druid. Yeah, possibly a druid pop star from that era. Mm -hmm. Place was fucking lousy with them. I mean, it was before the Gregorian chant monks came out with their thing, so it was all <laughs> druids. The Gregorian chant monks really drove the druids out of the pop scene. Oh, they really did. Mm. It is tragic. Mm. No one hates you for you, boys. <laughs> Like, and you a... said that I'm better at voices than you. That was a spot-on Gregorian, monti... Gregorian monk. Sadly sounded to me. Yeah. I'd say you boys have had enough. <laughs> Get oh, out of here. I'm a Gregorian monk, yeah? <laughs> Trying to chant over here. Quit it with all the Stonehenge. What's with all this worship of nature and trees and shit? What, are you eating a horse chestnut? Ha! <laughs> ah! Way to shut him down, Gregor. Hey. We're no. the original Gregorian monks. We're both named Gregor. No problem. That's where the name comes from. Yep. Corey, let's take this party to the Bozo. What instances of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to concentrate on? Madeline, wife of the late Jonathan, the ambassador who died of being scared of thunder and lightning's dad, referring to him as something that I think was maybe a typo or inspired the character Job, spelled G-O-B on Arrested Development, a deck-washing gob. Yeah, I was struck by that as well. And the lettering is ambiguous enough that it may have been SOB, which is what I thought initially. I kept rereading it, because when you look at that, it could be SOB, but I think it is Gob. Or 6-0-B. Oh, maybe that's like the apartment that all the real losers live in. <laughs> yeah, go watch your deck. Yeah. What are you, one of those guys who lives in 60-B? Yeah, it, I'm sure it must have... Could they, they could say SOB in a comic, right? Yeah, I don't see why not. I mean, especially in this comic book, which was direct market. Yeah, I don't think at this point it even has the comics code approval on the front. So they could have. So it might have been a typo. They may have left it purposefully ambiguous. But I have never heard of somebody referred to as a worthless gob. And it did definitely stand out. It is evocative. 
but it sounds meaner than I think that it should have been for this guy because he's like, but then he still let me marry his most beautiful daughter. He always called me a worthless pile of hawked up mucus. But deep down there was respect. <laughs> yeah, and that was the only one that really stood out to me. I mean, I had that, definitely, that was the one that stood out the most. I also had Phobia calling that room of business people who did nothing to stop her from killing the other ambassador candidate such devout cowards. Mm. Really just sticking it to them by calling them a traditional Irish alt-country band. They hate that. Businessmen don't want to be thought of that way. And mostly, I don't think it was intended necessarily as an insult, but when Phobia's dad says that even as an infant... You were cruel and evil. It's like, Jesus. I kept trying to imagine, like, what did she do that was so evil as an infant? Made the poopiest diaper. Yeah. Is that what it was? Like, the one time when he had to change the diapers, was he just like, oh, this child is evil. It's like one of the really bad ones. Yeah, she's definitely malicious. She angrily and with malicious intent pooped her pants. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, this kid's no good. And never will be. I'll hate her forever. That guy's a bad dad. Yep. So as I said, we have a different art team in this issue. It is penciled by Kurt Swan. The inks are still Romeo Tangal. Kurt Swan is an artist who, the last time we saw him in the pages of the New Teen Titans, was way back in, I think, the fifth issue of the original New Teen Titans series. He was an artist who had a very long career at DC. He was hired in 49 and was one of three artists who replaced the original Superman artist. The team of Siegel and Schuster were basically kicked out of DC for wanting to be paid for creating Superman. And so they brought in a trio of artists that were Kurt Swan, Wayne Boring, and Al Plastino to replace them working on the Superman titles. And Kurt Swan went on to work on and off on Superman as pretty much the primary Superman artist until 1986. So, an incredibly long run on that. This is 88, so this is a few years after that is when this issue came out. But he does a really solid job. I honestly would not have probably noticed that it wasn't Eduardo Barreto if it didn't say on the cover Kurtz one. And apparently somebody in the interior art department didn't notice that it wasn't Eduardo Barreto, because he is miscredited on the interior credits as having drawn this issue. Mm. But it is by Kurt Swan, and I think he does a very nice job. What was your favorite panel in here? I had two that both dealt with kind of how do you break a scene up into components to make it interesting. Mm -hmm. And one of them was from a panel we mentioned just now, where Phobia kills this businessman in a board meeting with his own claustrophobia. And it's a sequence of him crouching in smaller and smaller boxes. And it's really evocative of, like, how shitty that would be. Yeah, especially the way that those panels are broken up by a close-up of just his glasses that cut across it. And you see his eyeballs behind the glasses, but other than that, the glasses are, like, stenciled away from his face. It is really cool-looking and really, really well done and, and a very imaginative layout. I liked that one a lot. There is one panel that I call Fun with Dry Ice, and that is when the ambassador sees 
smoke and storm clouds billowing out of his martini glass. It is so fucking cool looking, the way that the thunder and lightning are drawn in that. And the shock on his face as he sees his greatest fear billowing out of his glass. It's really cool looking. Yeah, you get the sense about how much that would suck too, because everybody who's around him is getting super annoyed with they think he's making a joke. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, guys, I'm seriously freaking out here. <laughs> like, that was another scene in which I was like, the characterization of these people is kind of infuriating. Because, like, even when they question his wife at the end, she knows that his greatest fear is storm clouds. And she's like, he kept saying that storm clouds were billowing out and he was really afraid. And Raven's like, did he have any deep-seated fears? And she's like, no, nothing. And Raven's like, really? He's like, well, I wasn't going to mention this. This probably doesn't apply and isn't what you're talking about. But he was deathly terrified of storm clouds. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. She Palumbo'd pretty good. <laughs> yeah. One more thing. Man, I would love to see Peter Falk play Raven. Emotions. I'm, I'm feeling emotions. Uh, we need the ellipse. You just yeah. have... Uh. Uh, now, now my wife, back on Azeroth. Yeah, she, she, she loves these things. Hey, I was never a big fan of the emotions. I always had to repress him when my evil uh, bad dad Trigon, he lives in my soul tummy. He'd, he'd come out and uh, start uh, wreaking havoc, but... My, my, my wife loves these. She do you, do you mind if do you mind if I take some of your emotion? She'd kill me if I didn't. That's a good. That's a good Peter Falk <laughs> Raven. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. In the arbitrarily assigned year of our Lord, nineteen eighty nine, and the month of our Lord August, what was Aqualad probably up to, Corey? Whoopoot. In August of 1989, Aqualad was doing some scientific research, a little side hobby of his. I know there's all that internet stuff going on, but frankly, he was so caught up in all the hubbub of it, he needed to take a break Mm. and decided to get back to one of his true passions, which is, uh, I guess, hydrology or, you know, water stuff. Oh, sure. One of the ways that he's into water stuff is... He's fascinated with uh, endoheric basins, which are who isn't bodies of water that don't drain out to rivers that go to the ocean. Don't drain out to rivers to go to the ocean. Yeah, we all know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and he's like, I'm from the ocean. How can there be so much water that doesn't connect the ocean? This is crazy. I need to learn about it. <laughs> so he found himself in Hungary, a city called Sopron, which is near the border with Austria, where one of the largest of these bodies of water that doesn't drain out to the ocean is called Lake Newsidal. And so he's checking out Lake Newsidal and turns out Aqualad is huge in Hungary. As with many landlocked nations, they find his uh, sea strength and powers fascinating. Mm. So the prime minister, Miklos Nemeth, wanted to meet him and get an autograph. And so they wound up getting together and having a nice lunch, lots of fish from the lake, and uh, got to chatting. And the PM was, like, talking about the issues of the day and, uh, in particular, you know, how all these countries in the Baltics, like, how are we going to deal with this heavy, you know, oppression from the Soviet Union? Like, this Iron Curtain is really bumming me out. And Aqualad's, well, you know, I have always found that getting people together for a meal is the best way to start a conversation. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And so that sparked an idea in the idealistic prime minister. And that's why on August 19th of 1989, the Pan-European Picnic Peace Demonstration took place 
on the Austrian-Hungarian border near Sopron, where he was visiting. And that led to a chain reaction, ending in things like German reunification, the wall coming down, the Iron Curtain basically falling apart, uh, the Eastern Bloc being disintegrated, and a lot of the former communist governments in the region and the Warsaw Pact dissolving, effectively ending the Cold War. Wow. So, uh, who knew? Nice job, Aqualad. Must have been some good fish. Yeah. Now, did Aqualad attend this Oh, you know picnic? it. Yeah, he was at the picnic. I thought he might have. What day did you say it took place on? This is the 19th. Okay. Then it probably wasn't at the picnic that Aqualad was exposed to red kelp. Oh. You know in Superman 3, when Richard Pryor exposes Superman to red kryptonite, and it turns him into kind of a jerk? Mm-hmm. Red kelp has a similar effect on Aqualad. Oh, no. So, I think Beaky went and got him some kelp and uh, didn't check, you know, well-known scientific fact that pelicans are colorblind, probably. And so he brought him back this kelp, and it was red kelp, and Aqualad started acting like kind of a jerk. Hmm. And he was scheduled to meet with some of his friends at NASA later that day. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to blow their minds, man. I'm going to come up with a really good prank for them. So he started practicing little thing he, he was working on that he called uh, telepathic ventriloquism. You know how when he does his fish telepathy, little concentric circles shoot out of his head? Sure, yeah. Well, with this technique, he could make those little concentric circles look like they were shooting out of anywhere. So he figured he would do this, uh, this little prank where he'd be like, uh, hey guys, does Neptune have rings? And when they'd say, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, he'd be like, because Uranus does. And then he would make the concentric mm. rings shoot out of their butts. Mm. Pretty good prank mm -hmm. for an evil Aqualad. Because <laughs> even evil, he's really mostly just mischievous. Right. And so he was hanging out with his NASA friends, and he's, he does the setup. He's like, hey, guys, do you know that Neptune has rings? And they're like, oh, shit, does Neptune have rings? Gosh, I got to find this out. We got to research this. He's like, no, guys, you're messing up the setup to the... I, I'm going to make Rick... God damn it! No. And he just ended up storming out of the room, but it set in a series of events in motion where those scientists started looking at the Voyager 2's pictures it was shooting as it was flying by Neptune. And it turned out Neptune did have two partial rings. Hmm. And they never would have found that out if it wasn't for Aqualad being exposed to red kelp and trying to tell a Uranus joke. Incidentally, Uranus does have rings. It was discovered in 1977. Hmm. The planet Uranus, not your, your, your mm -hmm. butthole. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that has rings. None of my business. Mm -hmm. And that is what Aqualad was up to what in August of 1989. What a month. Indeed. Oh my gosh. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. And... Uh, I understand you are planning on getting lost and falling into a different dimension next week. Well, it's been a while. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I, I understand that's how you like to celebrate your birthday every year. So I hope you have fun in whatever dimension you end up on. I'm sure I'll find a cup of coffee to sullenly nurse wherever I land. Hey, sullenly nurse a cup of coffee for me too, buddy.
You got it. We will be having a special guest fill in for Corey next week, so I'm looking forward to that. We're going to take a look at Marvel Team-Up number 101 and see what Nighthawk and Spider-Man got up to in that. Spoiler alert, it does involve robot hippies and razor picket signs. Whoa. That's what you miss when you go to another dimension, Corey. Oh, man. You can still listen. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> in the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can reach us at Tighten Up the Defense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. I actually visited the post office box recently, and uh, we got some cool stuff, which I will share with you later. But we got a really nice package from Matthew Laserwitz. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, it was very nice. He gave us that Wong Hero click and the little paper flowers there and a big stack of comic books that I am really excited to dive into, including the who's who in the DCU that has Kid Flash in it, which I think is why he included it. There's a couple of Teen Titans in it, but it's also the issue that covers Johnny Double, which is why I'm excited. Nice. We also got another comic that was sent to us by Devin Tuhey, and he sent us a really, really thoughtful email as well, and I appreciate that. And we got a postcard from Lucas Brown in Australia awesome. with some fun facts about the Great Emu War there, oh. which is always delightful to learn more about. Thanks, so, guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. I very much appreciate that. Another way you can get into touch with us is by finding us on the socials media. We're up there sometimes. Twitter is where we do the Tighten Up the Defense Battle of the Band Names poll. So if you want to vote on that, you can uh, join us there. And we've also got a Facebook page, Instagram, seacaptainsonly.com, um, Friendster, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Grinder, uh, Grape Jam. That was a site my sister wrote for in the oh in the <laughs> early nineties, yeah, I believe. I remember now. That's old. Yeah, mid nineties. So yeah, you know all your popular internet sites. Mm -hmm. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been. I'm going to be nursing a cup of coffee sullenly in Corey's honor on this upcoming July 11th. Aw, oh, thanks, buddy. Happy birthday. Thank you. I mean, that is the only present I'm getting you. That you will sullenly I will sullenly nurse. nursing a cup of coffee in your honor. Oh, you got to send me a picture. Of course I will. Okay. What are you going to be doing? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Thinking of some birthday treats to make. Maybe a ginger creme brulee. Ooh. Those are pretty tasty. Yeah, it'll go good with that sullen coffee. Mm, actually would. Yeah. If you would like to support the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus materials, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast I co-host with my wife, Lisa. I know this month's episode is a little bit behind. We will be putting one up very shortly. And in the meantime, that Scooby-Doo WWE Superstar episode did go up last week. And it was so much fun recording that with Megan Bob. So uh, you guys should totally check that out as well. And there's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books and a bunch of other stuff up on the site that is 
there for our donors to thank you for showing us the support that you have. It means a great deal to me. Thank you. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, Corey, what's a way people can do that? Word of Mouth is wonderful. Mm, it is a very good ludicrous album. Word of Mouth. Oh, did you say Word of Mouth? Yeah. Oh, okay. I yeah, thought mouth. Word of Mouth. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's different. Yeah. Both are very good. Uh, tell somebody that maybe you think would be interested in the program. You know who might like it? Ludicrous. Tell Ludicrous. Yeah. He's busy making those Fast and the Furious movies, but, you know, he could probably use something to listen to in his trailer. Yeah, or if you're driving your Subaru sitting in cubicles and he's got weed crumbs under his cuticles, you know, everybody can use it. That's true. That's not the exact ludicrous lyric. Oh, <laughs> I tried. I thought you were. I thought that was a thing that happened in one of the Fast and the Furious movies. No, nope. it's like I. Th I don't think they're driving Subarus mostly. I know Vin Diesel's character is is certainly only going to drive American muscle cars. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's what they're they're going with F nine. I heard a Pontiac goes to space. Really? Uh huh. Dude, we have to go see that. Yeah, we kind of do. Do you remember when The Rock flexed out of his full body cast? Yep. That was one of the greatest moments in cinema. <laughs> yeah, The Rock. That wasn't Will Smith. That right? wasn't Will Smith, Corey, <laughs> no. <laughs> you were confused up. because James Avery did the voice of Junkyard right. Dog in that 80s cartoon. That always gets me. Yeah. Well, I think that's a one great way to spread the word. Another thing you could do is leave us a review on a place where uh, reviews can be oh, left. Oh, that's true. Yeah, like uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, there's probably a little button that says leave a review or reviews or news blank things you can use that solving that puzzle that's reviews mm -hmm. i don't know if you subscribe to a uh, a riddle based podcast server whatever they're called but uh if you do that's what that one is just solved it for you you're welcome <laughs> five stars yeah just leave a review say five stars they helped me solve a riddle i love puzzles five stars <laughs> exactly couldn't ask for a better review than that yep if you love puddle puddles, <laughs> yep. Yeah, if you love puzzles or puddles, doesn't matter. All ages, eight to eighty. Yep. Eight year olds, eighty year olds, everybody's leaving puddles and solving puzzles. Five stars. Five stars. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks. And until next week, uh, just one more thing. <laughs> uh, uh, back on Nazareth. Uh, my wife, she she loves these uh, Teen Titans comics. Uh, myself, I, I never particularly got into them, but uh, she, she'll, she'll just kill me if you don't listen to this podcast. Uh, you you got to check this out. Thank you, Peter Falk, for the cameo. <laughs> Bye. He was a terrific raven. He was. Hmm. Best we got. Mm -hmm. I would say favorite Peter Falk performances. Raven. Mm -hmm. Himself in Wings of Desire. Mm. Columbo. Of course. Guy Gisborne in Robin and the Seven Hoods, where he wrecks Harrison's his way through a song. And everything else Peter Falk has ever done. Oh, the in-laws. He was great in the in-laws. In-laws. It's him and Alan Arkin. He plays a CIA agent. Alan Arkin plays a dentist. I haven't seen that. Oh, it's great. Everything Peter Falk has ever done has been tremendous. One time, he was, uh, he was in high school, and he was playing baseball, and he was called out. And he thought that he was safe. And so he took out his fake eyeball and handed it to the referee and said, maybe this will work better for you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. That's off-putting. I love Peter Falk. I can see that. That's nice. Bye. Bye. Bye.
bong, 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 I'll send you an MP3 of it. You're going to make it your new ringtone. No, I was going to say for the Manusha song. Oh, okay. I don't bring up a lot of salient points in that. There's no mention of farts and who might or might not eat them. I forget the details of that song, but I think that's in there somewhere. <laughs> you can still use it as your ringtone if you want. You're generous. Thank you. I try. <laughs>